Everywhere and every day, healthcare professionals like you are working on improving quality and safety in healthcare. Medication prescribing is just one piece of the puzzle. That's why we're proud to invite you to join the Safety Track at this year's National Forum, being held this December in Orlando, Florida. The Safety Track is designed for professionals and students focusing on making the continuum of care safer for all patients and includes sessions on advancing care in the home, improving reliability, and even safety in dentistry. For the past 30 years, the IHI National Forum has been at the center of quality improvement in healthcare. Those who attend, healthcare visionaries, improvement professionals, nurses, students, and physicians, explore how improvement science methodologies can be used to affect real change in patient safety and care. Attending the National Forum is a great opportunity to play a part in affecting real change in healthcare quality and safety and to meet with and learn from great healthcare professionals to gain actionable ideas to bring home to your organization. The IHI National Forum will be held December 9th through 12th in Orlando, Florida. For more information on the safety track and all the other 10 tracks being offered at this year's National Forum, visit IHI.org forum. We hope to see you there. Now, here's WHI. If it's relatively easy to prescribe medications to patients, the same cannot always be said for stopping prescriptions or tapering them off. However, because of the dangers of polypharmacy, especially in older adults, uh, the opioid epidemic and other issues that challenge long-term use of certain medicines for certain conditions, de-prescribing, as it's called, is becoming more essential. That's why healthcare providers are eager to learn how to do this the right way, the safest way, and why we're going to devote some time to learning about what a handful of exemplar organizations are currently testing and figuring out about de-prescribing. That's coming up on this edition of WIHI, and I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here live for you, and then after the show, you can find this program on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Deprescribing is uh, quite an all-in process, I would say, if it's going to work at all. You're going to find that out from a lot of the stories we'll hear today. We have a lot to cover on today's show. All right, two introductions, as promised. So we've got a bunch of people on the phone, starting with Florian Darajati. He is the director of the Ascension Health Center of Excellence for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention. He has worked on several projects, excuse me, including pain management for his local health system and Ascension. Welcome, Florian. Good afternoon, Matt. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Leanne Phillips currently serves as the Clinical Pharmacy Coordinator for Ascension St. Vincent's East Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Leanne is responsible for the provision of clinical pharmacy services for that facility. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you very much, Madge. Good afternoon. Thank you. Wonderful. Lynn de Guzman serves as the Regional Clinical Operations Manager for Kaiser Permanente, North Carolina. She manages several Kaiser clinical pharmacy programs, including one on de-prescribing at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California. Welcome, Lynn. 
Hi, welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. Nicole Brandt is a professor of pharmacy practice and science and executive director of the Peter Lamy Center on Drug Therapy and Aging. That's all based at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. Nicole is lead faculty for the deprescribing work we're going to be learning about today. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you, Madge, and thank you, faculty. Joining me in the studio then is Leslie Pelton. She is a senior director at IHI with more than 19 years of experience managing, leading, and facilitating successful organization transformation and performance improvement in the healthcare industry. Leslie has been leading uh, this innovation community. Uh, a, a bit of the work we're going to hear about today, very, very interesting, and I've been sort of uh, pestering Leslie about it, I think, for most of the year. Uh, could way to do this WIHI. So let's get going. Leslie, concerns about the negative effects of polypharmacy, especially with older adults. Those have been around for a while. I think you and I, uh, with older people in our lives, can attest to the fact that it often seems as though family members were the most concerned about uh, polypharmacy. But now we've got this term deprescribing, and it does seem as though a whole new effort is coming from the clinical side. Uh, so what's going on? What's changed? Thanks a lot. Thank you, Madge. I, I, I want to underscore um, some of what you already said in your, your very compelling uh, framing uh, that we really are understanding more and more uh, every day what the potential risks are of polypharmacy, especially to older adults, um, and uh, increased risk of falls, of delirium, which we now know has long-term consequences uh, for older adults' uh, cognitive and emotional health. Um, and, and as you said, the question that we're hearing out in the field, that IHI was hearing out in the field was now that we know that there may be risks associated with polypharmacy, um, what can we do about it? Um, so, you know, before answering the question, I, I think it's it's worthwhile uh, recognizing that the system as it currently exists is designed to deliver exactly what it is delivering. Not a big surprise here. Um, and, you know, so we have patients and as you just said, families um, who are very committed to their medications. Um, uh, they have a, a strong sense of whether they're helping or or in some cases, harming them. Uh, and uh, we focus our providers, our staff, rightly um, on uh, managing the pain um, of, of our patients. Um, and we, as uh, in my case, as a, a daughter of, of uh, an older adult mother, um, you know, part of my job is is managing that that with her. Um, so, um, you know, we've we've done a good job of of uh, accessing medications to help the older adult um, patients and all the patients in our lives. Um, and we at IHI, we've really supported the system's focus on medication rec reconciliation. We've wanted to know and want systems to know what medications is a person taking. And all of this was and is good. Um, and, and now it's time uh, because of what uh, you've talked about, because we know about the possible risks. Uh, uh, we now need to uh, really build systems that know when and how to stop medication use. Um, and this is where the work of Ascension and Kaiser comes in. I'm really excited for everybody to uh, to hear more from them. Uh, before we do, I'm going to back us up to about 2016 um, when the Commonwealth Fund and IHI came together and asked the question, can intractable problems in the frontline delivery of healthcare be resolved by applying innovations from outside of, of the U.S.? Um, so Ascension and Kaiser uh, were part of a uh, network, a learning collaborative of health systems who worked 
worked with us to help answer that question along with about 200 experts outside of the U.S. Um, and the 14 health systems that were working together in the Learning Collaborative articulated a few problems uh, in which uh, they wanted the experts to source innovations. And you see one here up on the screen, um, the overutilization of low-value test treatments and, and procedures. And um, health systems uh, found in the in this learning collaborative, um, they found the will for uh, the will for uh, to address this through deprescribing um, in Canada at the Brer Research Institute and the Ontario Pharmacy Research Collaborative, otherwise known as Open, um, with Dr. Barb Farrell. She's a pharmacist and a researcher there. And the key to what Dr. Farrell offered was an approach to develop evidence-based algorithms for deprescribing. Uh, and I, I know the link to deprescribing.org is going to be is going to be chatted in here for you. Um, but answering the question about how innovations from outside the U.S. could positively impact care in the U.S. was not about lifting and loading a, a, a technical solution from outside the U.S. Um, into the U.S. system. Um, so what you will hear from uh, Ascension and KP is how they applied the model for improvement to test and learn about how deprescribing would work in their system. Um, so uh, uh, first with the innovation from uh, Dr. Farrell, uh, really using that, that innovation uh, for will building and then starting to uh, test that innovation first in a very, very small way um, and then in an increasingly uh, uh, diverse uh, in environment um, until Ascension and Kaiser really found the approach to deprescribing that worked in their system that they could spread um, spread to all. So you're going to learn today about different paths that each took. Um, I know Madge is going to, I know you're going to ask great questions that are going to help really get underneath that. Um, and the innovation from Dr. Farrell on, de on deprescribing.org was really a spark that built the will for testing this idea of deprescribing. And I hope that others will be able to figure out through these lessons how they can do this themselves. All right. Thank you so much, Leslie. Um, Leslie, as you can tell, was being super succinct. I hope uh, we'll uh, hear more from Leslie in the Q&A. And um, thank you for setting this up so nicely. So I want to turn now uh, to Florian. And um, I guess my question to you, it's uh, now we're kind of going to one of uh, th this issue, of course, could pop out and become a show all unto itself. In fact, we could talk about this uh, on multiple programs. But the once liberal prescribing of opioids and sedatives is, of course, in the crosshairs of public and clinical attention right now. Um, the focus at Ascension St. Vincent Hospital in Florida appears to be targeting the cl clinician's prescription pad, as in maybe taking opioids off the preferred list unless really necessary. So really flipping things around. And I think of this perhaps as deprescribing writ large, uh, really, in the whole scheme of this uh, program. So, Florian, tell us what's been going on. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Madge, and thank you again for the opportunity to, to discuss our program here a little bit. So as our organization was getting involved in this deprescribing project, we really wanted to focus on a class of medications that was truly impacting the patients within our uh, three hospital system here in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, many of the issues with, with opioid addictions tend to arise from the fact that patients are started on opioids due to some kind of an acute issue, such as a painful surgical procedure or a complicated disease state. And because pain 
may persist for a significant period of time after that acute episode is addressed, the opioid prescription is continued in a passive discharge from the hospital. So this leads to uh, many of our patients becoming dependent on that opioid. So our organization's focus was on ensuring that we don't start opioids on someone unless we absolutely had to. And if we did have to start opioids, let's use the lowest effective dose for the shortest possible time and reevaluate. So we started with a goal to reduce the use of, of higher doses, uh, as well as overall utilization of opioids in our emergency department and on the inpatient setting within the hospital by 20%. We ended up exceeding our goal over the period of uh, 12 months from April uh, 2017 to April 2018, uh, in that we reduced our opioid use uh, across our organization by 33%. Um, what, what was truly remarkable is also that our patient self-reported pain scores also improved over that period of time. So not only uh, did we lower the use of opioids, we in fact not only did not increase pain, we improved pain over that period of time, as you can kind of see on the chart there. So the bar graph is the a pain score and the line graph is the narcotic use over time. <clears throat> so there are several drivers that led to these incredible results. First guidance from our implementation science experts at the IHI was extremely helpful. They helped keep us on track and made sure that our approach was based on doing small tests of change uh, before full-scale implementation. It's also very important that the organization has a culture of safety and quality embedded within its, its, its culture there. We brought in a multidisciplinary team that involved frontline nurses, providers, pharmacists, quality folks, and analytics, information technology, and uh, kept our senior leadership team uh, really engaged. It's imperative that you engage the frontline clinicians and nursing who are willing to champion the work, as well as the educators that are gonna spread the message across the organization. Our information technology and analytics team helped improve the workflow of those clinicians and also helped share the results that, that sustain the efforts as it relates to this work. We also engaged community members to ensure that we listen to the voice of those most effective uh, affected, excuse me. It's important that, that the why of deprescribing really be incorporated into our discussions in the physician office or clinic setting, setting with patients and their family members, especially prior to sur surgical procedures and during acute episodes in the emergency department or uh, medical wards. We attempted to set realistic short and long-term goals and expectations on pain control specific to a, a surgical procedure or a pain syndrome. Now, it's also important to develop measurable goals that were impactful to our clinicians, nurses, and patients. Also, the action plan developed should be incorporated into the current clinical workflow, deprescribing strategies using a multimodal approach based on individual patient characteristics, preferences, and needs were incorporated into our treatment standard, excuse me, into our standard treatment bundles in the ED, medical ward, or post-operative setting. We decreased the dose and reduced the number of opioids within those treatment bundles, particularly focused on our orthopedic population to start with. We used non-sedating medications as part of our treatment backbone and administered opioids based on certain activity goals that were established daily between the provider and the patient. This was an early win really that allowed us to see immediate results and help maintain that momentum and support the more difficult recommendations that were to come, uh, long-term recommendations. As part of that long-term strategy, we built these smart alerts within our electronic health records to identify situations when a patient may be at risk for oversedation based on certain vital signs and other parameters. 
Now, being a large organization, um, ensuring a consistent message is communicated between providers, nursing, ancillary departments, and patients obviously is quite a challenge. You know, in and of itself, educating providers across a large organization is no small feat. Other challenges were also uh, incorporation of those individual patient characteristics into our clinical workflow through the electronic health record, as well as the transition from the inpatient side uh, to the outpatient environment. However, overall, it really was an amazing, inspiring uh, experience to see that collaborative approach uh, to improve the patient outcomes across our organization. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you so much, uh, Florian. And, you know, we're uh, looking at work that has both had some early wins and is in progress. And um, I'm inviting the audience to think of some questions as we go along here uh, in terms of sort of the approaches each of these organizations has taken in terms of getting uh, everyone on board, uh, who, who's essential, uh, who's important in this one. Uh, so just kind of be thinking along those lines. All right. Thank you so much, Florian. All right. Also part of Ascension, I want to turn now to Leanne Phillips. Um, and, you know, when I heard that the work involved proton PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, I thought to myself, wow, they're the most commonly used drugs in the world and people swear by them. Uh, so the thought of deprescribing, I, I thought, wow, that must be an interesting challenge. So uh, tell us uh, the why of that, uh, Leanne, and how that work has been going. Thank you. Thank you, Madge. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. They're, they're very commonly used and prescribed. Um, and they are generally considered low-cost medications, but there are still inherent benefits in deprescribing in this class of medications such as standardization of practice and elimination of unnecessary or inappropriate use, which could lead to potential adverse effects. And that is something that sometimes is overlooked, but there are certainly complications of acid suppression, uh, such as acute and chronic kidney disease, C. difficile-associated diarrhea, bone fractures, hypomagnesemia, iron deficiency anemia, and pneumonia. And really, uh, clinicians are rarely given advice for stopping medications when potential risk outweigh potential benefits and often do not discontinue unnecessary therapy when the patient changes in levels of care. So with all of this coupled together, it really um, highlighted our need to address PPI overutilization in our facility. So at that point, we started working on our deprescribing strategy, and uh, this really started with developing champions and leaders. So uh, for our leadership support, we had great national leadership support from Ascension, and we've had great leadership support through IHI. And um, that coupled with our local leadership really set the foundation for us to start moving this project forward. Um, after we were really set with uh, leadership involvement, we identified a physician champion. Um, this, this physician is an active member of the team and uh, really oversees the implementation phases and results. And this is a very important role. And I would encourage anyone who does move forward with this to have a a strong physician leader who is uh, invested and engaged in seeing positive results. 
Um, we then uh, identified a pharmacist champion to develop the implementation plan and to direct the pharmacist involved in the pilot program. Uh, the pharmacists uh, collaborate with the team throughout this whole project, and uh, there is a lot of involvement between the pharmacist and the physicians and the whole pharmacy team and really all physicians throughout the hospital. And just because we're looking at PPI therapy, we did add in a gastroenterologist lead. Uh, we identified a leader to serve as a subject matter expert and to function as a liaison between the pilot program team and the gastroenterology physicians in the ministry, and we found that to be a very good decision uh, that really did bridge gaps between uh, this project and um, questions that our GI physicians raised along the way. Um, so after we um, had our team members established, we started providing hospital-wide education. And we wanted to promote the deprescribing program uh, to communicate the adverse effects associated with PPIs and to identify inappropriate use of proton pump inhibitor therapy. And then our next step, we obtained medical staff approval to limit the emergency department proton pump inhibitors to one-time doses only. We did exclude continuous infusions here, but uh, early on we identified that many of our orders did start in the emergency department and they just continued throughout the patient's hospital stay and then many times just were continued at discharge as well. So we knew that that was a point we really needed to address. Um, after we implemented that phase, we obtained medical staff approval to implement proton pump inhibitor criteria for use, and this has to be addressed uh, by the inpatient prescriber at the initiation of every order. And then, so we could track our progress and adherence to the guidelines, uh, we use a clinical surveillance system. We use Century 7 at our facility uh, so that we could keep up with that. So then, after all of this was established and, and we moved it forward. We wanted to, of course, look at our results. So uh, we evaluated a 12-month period to include six months prior to initiating deprescribing and six months post-initiating deprescribing. And these results revealed a 76% decline in proton pump inhibitor purchases over um, the six months post-deprescribing implementation compared to the previous six months at our facility. And really, this pilot program has led to an increased awareness by prescribers to carefully review and consider if a proton pump inhibitor is the best choice for the patient or if another option is more appropriate. Um, so we did have challenges along the way. I would say one of the largest challenges we had was the concept of deprescribing was a very unfamiliar term in our ministry. Uh, so due to this unfamiliarity, we had to do extensive hospital-wide education. But with education, we were successful with increasing the level of understanding about deprescribing, and it allowed us to garner support for this um, PPI deprescribing project along the way. Um, the next steps for us, uh, we will increase our patient education. We are focusing on patients who do meet criteria and for those patients who do, do not meet criteria. So for those patients who do meet criteria, uh, education will focus on the potential adverse effects associated with PPI therapy and will guide the patients to follow up with their physicians to, to discuss the duration of therapy so that we don't have cases where patients are, again, just on it indefinitely without a stopping point if their indication does indicate that they can't stop. Um, education will also be provided to those patients who are admitted with a proton pump inhibitor as a home medication that is deemed inappropriate or no longer needed. And we will focus on the adverse effects associated with the proton pump inhibitor and reasons to discontinue that therapy. And we will also instruct the patients about when to follow up with their physician. 
Um, another next step for us, uh, we have one of our pilot facilities that has been using a clinical decision support tool. Um, and this tool requires the criteria for use documentation prior to allowing the prescriber to proceed with ordering a proton pump inhibitor. Uh, at this point, we are using a manual process. And um, so having this clinical decision support will help us to streamline our process a little bit more and, and decrease some of the resources that we are using towards this project at this time. Um, and I do want to say just for our next steps with deprescribing, uh, the implementation of the PPI deprescribing at our facility has been very positive and it has resulted in a positive culture shift and it has really increased deprescribing awareness in, in our hospital. Um, so the next thing that we would like to do is, is to work on another deprescribing therapy using the framework that we have had with PPI deprescribing. And we are actually uh, planning to start working on opioid deprescribing, as Florian was just discussing. Okay. Wow. All right. I know it is definitely kind of rapid presentation here, but Leanne, thank you so much for putting this all into very, very clear uh, process things. And I can see some other questions uh, coming in slowly for this. Um, all right. I now want to turn uh, to Lynn. Uh, Lynn, you can help clarify. You've got something going on with deprescribing medications related to type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, perhaps some other things as well. So uh, thank you for uh, bringing your work uh, into the mix here for us uh, to appreciate. Thanks, Lynn. Great. Thank you, Madge, for the introduction. So at Kaiser Permanente, our mission is to provide high quality and affordable health care to our members and the communities that we serve. A few years ago, a rollout of provider education that included physicians and pharmacists focused on the American Geriatric Society's Choosing Wisely guidelines. This initiative provided our pharmacy team an opportunity to focus on deprescribing, diabetes, and the blood pressure medications in the elderly population, as you just mentioned earlier, Madge. Studies have shown that tight control over blood sugars and blood pressure may increase the likelihood of hypoglycemia and orthostatic hypotension in patients over 75 years old. These symptoms will increase, uh, lead to an increased risk of falls and potentially lower mortality rates. So in partnership with Kaiser's pharmacy and our medical groups, we developed algorithms that targeted patients who may be at risk for these side effects. Soon, this became an opportunity for our team to enhance our pharmacy team's portfolio. So our Medicare Part D, Medication Therapy Management Pharmacist, we do have advanced training with at least a one-year pharmacy residency experience or equivalent clinical experience. With our team's advanced clinical training, our pharmacists are able to initiate, discontinue, or titrate medication therapy under approved physician collaborative practice agreements. So we call it MTM. So in MTM, we are performing comprehensive medication reviews to review drug-drug interactions, identify high-risk medications, and optimizing our patients' medication therapy to reach their health outcome goals. As we helped our patients reach their health goals, this work has become a natural progression to deprescribing. We were thinking, let's identify patients who may not need as much medication to maintain their health goals. IHI has played a vital role in bringing these different perspectives for us. We implemented several PDSA workflow changes, 
Since our program's inception, our team has been able to successfully stop or reduce the dose for approximately 2,800 patients. In partnerships with our pharmacy research group, we analyzed a six-month outcome and we showed a reduction in hypoglycemia and mortality. Our team will continue to analyze this work and we're hoping to publish soon. IHI also challenged our team to explore balancing measures. What other outcomes may be impacted with our deprescribing work? My partnership with the Pharmacy Quality Alliance Group has helped our team to explore what balancing measures to look at. We want to ensure that our patients are taking their medications as directed. So our team also continued to keep our focus on medication adherence. So these are one of the balancing measures that we wanted to look at. As we were looking at the adherence scores, they were actually negligible in the oral diabetes medications and um, the renin-angiotensin agent. We also saw a slight increase in statin adherence. This is surprising to us since we did not intervene with statin therapy. Perhaps simplifying medication regimens would lead to improved adherence as well. Upon further evaluation of A1C goals, our patients maintained their health outcome goals after the pharmacy intervention. So it was really exciting to see that as well. And last but not least, in addition to helping our members, our work was meeting the fourth aim of the quadruple aim, which is provider well-being. Our team members found this work so rewarding in helping our members simplify their medication therapy. Thank you very much, uh, Lynn. Really appreciate it. Um, I want to remind everybody that we post the slides uh, to the website uh, as of tomorrow uh, so that you can review them again. And also you can, of course, download them now. There's a link. You hopefully got them before the show as well. But uh, you can reference those again. And now I'm so excited that Nicole Brandt is here because Nicole is going to bring it all together <laughs> and uh, tie, tie this all together. Uh, we've got some very particular kinds of drugs, conditions, uh, an array of things, obviously uh, some very specific reasons to do certain things with certain meds, um, and also some overriding concepts and principles. So thank you very much, uh, Nicole. Welcome. Thank you, Madge. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you to Florian, Leanne, and Lynn for sharing their models. What we've heard is outstanding work, and it really has been through a systematic approach, albeit they've modified the original goals of the deprescribing.org work that Dr. Farrell has done, but they've done it through an interprofessional team. And I think that's really important because when we think about deprescribing, deprescribing is that systematic process of identifying and discontinuing medications in instances in which there's potential harms outweigh potential benefits. So you heard Leanne talk about proton pump inhibitors and trying to battle polypharmacy uh, through the reduction with diabetes medications. And I loved, Lynn, how you shared with the team the balancing measure of improving adherence. A picture is worth a thousand words, so share with you briefly a patient I've seen from our clinic who 
poor, was poorly adherent to a lot of medications. So again, how do we systematize this approach to deprescribing, and how do we work at it as a team? So as we look to the context of various frameworks, and really you're going to have to go back to your system to see what some of those high-risk medications would be, such as Florian did with the opiates and sedatives through his work. Because what we need to really focus on is what matters to our patients. And so you'll see with our different approaches, and again, we probably all have different experiences, is if we start at the top with our patient and their caregivers, their families, and understand what their goals are, where their current level of functioning is, what their life expectancy may be, where they are in terms of their values and preferences of treatment, and truly understand that and develop care plans. So we've heard about clinical alerts, but I think as we emerge with our sophistication with electronic health records and truly team care planning, we'll see even more better communication to optimize appropriate, effective, safe, and ideally adherent medication use to medications that are meaningful to where our patients are at. And what's been so encouraging to me as a pharmacist and as a faculty member at a school of pharmacy is we're part of the team. We're being recognized as part of the team and part of the champions as setting these goals, helping to address some of the medication therapy problems that our patients are identifying, and really helping to meet them where they're at um, as behalf of the rest of the interprofessional team. So this alignment of services um, and engaging other departments is so critical. And so um, as Florian will share further with some of his work with Ascension in terms of engaging other departments in non-pharmacologic approaches to make sure we're still meeting our patients' goals and not compromising pain management is vital. So again, what matters to our patients and their caregivers and those um, benefits that we see that we probably didn't intentionally try to measure are really important. But I think as we think about our system changes, there's going to need to be better communication. And so one of the studies I shared, and I think there's so much more studies, as Lynn was mentioning, that need to be published, and I encourage all of you on this line today to think about the work that you're doing. But this is one out of a VA study looking at, again, how do we improve our systems in something so basic as understanding an indication for use. And from my very own work, I know that when a provider is prescribing something where it's unclear, they may feel uncomfortable in stopping it. So I think there's more we can do to, again, take little steps towards a bigger perspective to make system changes. So I'm really excited because there's been a lot of um, movement both here within the U.S. and also through other countries in terms of looking at potentially inappropriate medications, looking at high-risk medications. So we've shared with you some resources, but I think most importantly is we want to share our experiences and answer your questions. So Madge, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Okay. Thank you very much. I really uh, appreciate that. And uh, you'll see that um, Nicole has some good links uh, as well um, with some resources here. Also, the Lamy Center uh, is listed on her own uh, initial slide. Um, how to work with community pharmacists. Okay, uh, Leslie's handing me a question, and that means we are at at that point in the show. So um, first of all, I we did provide you with a lot of information. We can go back to some of the slides. Uh, we've got a big deck today that I hope you'll download and review. 
uh, and consider. And everybody who's here with us today has provided an email address for follow-up questions. But uh, please chat to all participants so that we can actually see your question. Um, I think I want to... start with somebody asked, I think, almost immediately about sustainability. Uh, So we're talking about work, I guess, over the past year or so, uh, and whether that has come up as an issue, uh, sort of everybody getting the hang of it and continuing to measure. Um, I'm not sure who wants to talk about uh, sustainability, but maybe um, I'll go back to uh, Florian, and talk about your work, uh, since I think there's a lot of pressure uh, there around the opioid crisis and sort of how to kind of maintain uh, that very, very focused way of sustaining the kinds of changes you're you're looking for. Thanks. Thank you, Madge. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously that's, that's a key question uh, overall. Um, every organization has competing priorities that they're working on and a big focus is um, that, that they're working on during that period of time. Uh, for us to help build sustainability, um, what we had to do really is incorporate these recommendations into the clinical workflow. So uh, the EHR element was really important component for us. So incorporating the, the recommendations into our standard treatment algorithms and bundles that our providers are using on a, on a daily basis. Obviously, the educational element is an extremely important component, and getting to all the pertinent providers, nursing, pharmacy leaders uh, across the organization, frontline pharmacists as well. Again, th- those are some of the key strategies that um, that we've incorporated. Okay, sounds good. I want to uh, also. I'm thanking Leslie Pelton is in here chatting away. Uh, this I guess comes across as me. Uh, so now you know how smart I am um, as Leslie <laughs> addresses uh, questions. Of, so uh, that's all. Just wanted to, in full disclosure mode, there. Somebody is asking, what tools do you use to access the patient health? literacy level to gauge how information is uh, communicated. Uh, Leanne, let me uh, throw that one to you for starters. The health literacy? um, Yes. In terms of if we are educating the patient, we do have a tool that we use to make sure that the patient is competent to to receive that education or if if the patient is not, that a family member is present. Um, And really, if we establish that the family member is is present and uh, can receive it or the patient can receive it based on our assessment, then we do proceed with education. So it's just a, a, a simple tool that we use to just assess that they that they can comprehend what we are talking about. And if they can't, we will move them on on the calendar to follow up back up just depending on what's going on. It may be a very limited period of time where they are not able to receive education, but um, after that period of time, they may be able to. So we follow up, and if it's something more long-term, we just span that time out a little bit further when we can talk to the patient. Okay, thanks. Leslie. Leanne, thank you for that. Um, Lynn, uh, this is Leslie. I'm wondering if I can put you on the spot for a moment because you learned a lot through your testing about how to communicate and how not to communicate with patients. Or maybe a better way to say that is how to communicate with patients in a way that could be heard, what kind of language to use, what words to avoid. Um, Might you be able to share some of those experiences? 
Uh, sure. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, as our team members were doing this work, you know, some members, you know, thought that, um, you know, we're accusing us of why are we getting off this medication therapy, I'm at goal, I don't understand. Uh, so we did partner up with our health education group and really try to just educate the patient uh, that uh, there's new studies available, that our body is changing, and that we wanted to reevaluate their medication therapy. Um, many of the patients we did outreach to do meet their um, their health outcome goals. So they've been kind of been, you know, thumbs up for years to come, and then here we are trying to get their therapy off. Um, other things that we did uh, look at is that we also reassured the patient that we would follow up with them in a couple of weeks and, you know, we'll provide them the option to add on the medication uh, back to their therapy if their, you know, their A1C goal was, uh, was not at goal. So so that when we offered that option to them, it made them feel more comfortable in, you know, trying to give it a shot to see what they, what they would feel like if they stopped the medication or reduced the dose. Thank you, Lynn. Um, maybe what I'll do is I'll ask Nicole, and then if you want to jump in on this uh, as well. Uh, there's a question here about models that are working well for pharmacists that are part of and well integrated into the systems. And somebody is wondering about models that might, you know, help smaller clinics who partner with community pharmacists and may not have all the levers in, in a system. Nicole, can I ask you about that? Sure, Madge. Um, I think that's a really great question, and I kind of alluded that a little bit in terms of exchanging information, right? Um, so the pharmacist uh, may have a good sense of what the patient's goals are or may not, so asking them those questions that we talked about. And oftentimes our community pharmacists are really at that position where patients are having difficulty affording medications, so they can really help to prioritize some of those medication access as well. But I think it's important that they communicate back to the team uh, to ensure that there's not more medications being added. I think what we sometimes see happen is because we're not having these good conversations, sometimes more medications are added and the adherence becomes more of an issue. So I'm hopeful, Madge, as we further develop our medication exchange, our health information exchanges, that the community pharmacist, even though they may not be part of an integrated system per se, will have the information that they can share. Uh, with the other healthcare team members. So I think they're a vital role, but sometimes I feel like they need to get empowered to feel like they can add to the team discussion. Coming back, and I just want to, in talking about empower, actually uh, Dr. Tannenbaum's group with Dr. Farrell's group out of Canada, one of their pivotal members of the team was a community pharmacy and pharmacist, and they were integral in providing the education at a level, as we talked about health literacy, that really helped to reduce the dose um, of benzodiazepines, which I think was another question. Um, so again, the community pharmacist it needs to be part of that discussion and equation. And I know we could have further discussions on even how we communicate with orders with deprescribing. Um, but again, that's probably outside the scope of this. But the community pharmacist and pharmacy is a vital link to ensure and support the patient um, as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I'm wondering uh, if any of you might have some thoughts about 
the uh, kind of reasoning behind where you started with this work? I mean, what led you to focus on where you did, um, which might give others listening today some ideas about where would you start? We have a certain set of of, uh, drugs uh, that are related to certain kinds of conditions as well as pain. Um, and uh, well, I don't know. Let's start. Let's start uh, kind of with with Lynn, and then we'll kind of go around the horn about how you made the decision about what you were going to focus on. Lynn. Uh, yes. So for our work, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we found an opportunity to really look at the American Geriatric Society choosing wisely guidelines, and it's um, a, a couple hundred page document, uh, but they really do point out some, a lot of opportunities to focus on particular drug classes where we I want, really wanted to, you know, keep our patients safe. And so, you know, we found some opportunities with blood pressure and diabetes. Uh, currently, HEDIS measures do look at uh, controlling uh, those disease states uh, for patients uh, up to 75 years old. So we wanted to really explore the opportunities at looking at our members who are over uh, 75 years old. Okay, that's that's clear. Uh, Florian, what about um, the the decisions uh, made to focus on opioids? Perhaps obvious <laughs> in light of issues that are going on right now, but um, also, uh, you know, a big a big area where you needed to dig in. Yeah, absolutely. And and as you mentioned, th- this issue of opioid overuse uh, is not just a, a national issue. It was a very local issue for us. We live in an area where uh, it is a huge problem. And our organization, in looking at our own internal data, made this a priority because of the consequences uh, that our patients were having. So it was a kind of an easy choice to pick as a topic or as an area to focus on because of the needs of our patients and the community. Uh, within our within our area here, so probably you didn't have as much uh, persuading uh, uh, as maybe some others did. Um, somebody is asking what type of education to providers and staff was found to be the best to help with deprescribing. Leanne, did you uh, find that uh, to be an important area? You did say not everybody uh, was familiar with the, uh, the terminology, uh, but also was there a, a much of a consensus view about uh, proton pump inhibitors and uh, particularly for people as they get older? Well, we, we certainly looked at PPIs because they're they're overused nationally and we identified that on the front end and then we started looking closely at the utilization at our ministry and we certainly identified very quickly that there was overutilization within our ministry as well. Um, this allowed us to have, it was a good opportunity for us to segue into deprescribing uh, using PPIs as a class uh, to get that information out and the education out about deprescribing. And uh, again, as I spoke about the concept of deprescribing, it was a new concept for everyone largely. So just really getting everyone familiar with deprescribing and starting to change the culture in terms of how everyone is thinking about managing medications so that we can start looking at what can we take off instead of what can we add on. Um, But this really did provide a good opportunity for us to have this foundation with PPIs that was fairly easy and not extremely controversial to do uh, and and I think has really 
we have the groundwork now so that we can move forward with other therapies, um, such as we discussed the opioids that we are we are starting to pursue next. So I just think really the education around PPIs and deprescribing in general, and then the work that we've done has really highlighted the importance, and it has been very successful, and it has really been a positive shift in, in the way that we're thinking here. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Trissa, uh, from IHI, and uh, all your uh, number of points that you're contributing uh, to the chat, so everyone can take a look at that. Um, Nicole, I guess I would ask you uh, about challenges uh, and uh, sort of when this kind of work uh, unfolds, it does seem as though there's there's reason to cheer about some early success and, and yet uh, it has to continue. Uh, I imagine uh, that there may be members of the innovation community that are not quite as far along uh, for various reasons. So what sorts of themes would you point out, again, as maybe helping uh, other organizations that may want to start digging into this more? Great question. I think what we've heard today was focus, right? Is focusing on some of those high risk areas or potentially problematic areas within the practice settings. Um, aligning services and identifying champions, we need, you really need to have a champion on the team. You also need to make sure that you have readily accessible data because the graphs and bar charts that uh, Florian shared, for instance, really empower teams and feel like they're getting satisfaction. Um, so making sure that you look at those measurements, but also look at um, you know making sure you have balancing measures, as you heard Lynn talk about. So I think it's you know some of the challenges as part of our system um, inadequacies, um, sometimes depending which system you're coming from. Um, the other challenge, and I think where some of the work needs to go, and this is why. It's it's great to have conversations with organizations on behalf with IHI and others is, is really to look at what is the sustainability, what is the cost effectiveness, what's the return on investment of these programs. What we've heard about are sometimes immeasurable things like changing culture, opening conversations that haven't been had, engaging patients in the decision making and their families. But I think sustaining that and also showing the business case because oftentimes we have to make sure we put that within our projects as well. So I think there's more work to be done, but those are just a couple of the challenges. And I also you know, want to talk to Florian because I think he highlighted in one of his slides some of their challenges uh, with the program as well. So those are just kind of hitting on some of the high points, Madge, um, but again, I know the others probably have some additional thoughts to contribute. Okay. Um, Florian, uh, <laughs> Nicole uh, handed it off uh, to you. Thank you very much, uh, Nicole. Yes, let's see if we can. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, as, as Nicole mentioned, the incorporation into the clinical workflow um, is extremely important. I mean, ensuring that you have kind of a consistent message between providers and nursing and all these ancillary departments is, is really a big, big challenge because um, there's different competing priorities from different uh, departments within a specific organization. And then with technology, even though we've moved uh, quite a bit over the last few years, in various areas, there's still that lack of uh, nimbleness, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, when you're talking about clinical decision support tools that take into account individual patient characteristics. So, so you want to build specific um, identifiers within it without 
necessarily causing alert fatigue to our providers within our electronic health record. And, and then also the transitions of care to the outpatient environment for us. Uh, again, that, that's, there's a very, outside of maybe Kaiser, very few, very few organizations that have a closed loop system that can help transition you know, the medications from one side to the other effectively. And, and so I think that's, that's definitely a key element. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Dirk, I think is we're going to get one last question in. Uh, Dirk, it's a question I think belongs to Lynn in this instance. Are you incorporating diet and lifestyle changes as a strategy uh, for de-prescribing? Uh, sort of certain um, experts out there will say that you can get off all diabetes meds in two weeks with dietary changes. Um, thoughts about that, Lynn, in terms of sort of bringing in uh, really all the possibilities uh, that can help somebody and support somebody? Yes, so that definitely we found those opportunities while we were doing this work. So we have partnered up with our health education department, um, and that's something that is coming. We're scheduling it to provide some diabetes training on non-pharmacological um, therapies, such as diet and exercise. Um, our pharmacists um, are familiar with managing diabetes uh, through their MTM work, so they have discussed that with our members. So, yes. Great. For sure. Okay, thank you. John, uh, thank quick you. quick comment uh, just be as we wrap up. Go ahead. Yeah, I have to find the slide because we're working <laughs> with a new format here, but there's a lovely slide with some information about the IHI National Forum. And, you know, folks who listen to WIHI know, especially this episode, that safety and medication prescribing is uh, just one aspect of, of safety in healthcare. But if you're a healthcare professional who's working on safety, uh, we're really proud to invite you to join the safety track at this year's National Forum. Um, the safety track is designed for professionals and students that focus on making the continuum of care safer for all patients. Um, and it includes sessions on advancing care in the home. Uh, improving reliability, and, and even safety in dentistry. Um, attending the National Forum is a great opportunity to play a part in affecting real change in healthcare quality and safety, and, uh, and you get a chance to meet from, uh, meet with and learn from uh, healthcare professionals and gain actionable ideas that, that bring real change to your organization. Um, for more information on the safety track and uh, the 10 other tracks that are being featured at this year's National Forum, uh, visit IHI.org slash forum. Thank you, John. And I, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to also make mention that on Tuesday, December 11th at the uh, forum, uh, there is a session on polypharmacy, pharmacist-led describing de-prescribing programs, and that includes uh, Linda Guzman uh, and others. So you can check that out. And then Don Goldman's going to be leading a session also on scaling up promising innovations, getting back to what Leslie said at the beginning. All right. I think we're coming to the end of our hour together. I want to be respectful of everybody's time, and I want to uh, just thank all our panelists uh, for your fabulous summary, uh, uh, summaries, I should say, of uh, painstaking work. Uh, is the innovation community's findings, I think, will continue to be discussed uh, and next steps. So we'll look out for that information. A reminder to everybody that, yes, 
the audio, the slides, the chat, everything lands on our website. As of tomorrow, uh, the uh, podcast version of this program also lands on iTunes or your favorite podcast uh, provider. So a big thank you to our panelists today, to the audience, to the chat. Don't forget to download uh, the chat when you get off because it's a really handy way uh, to remember the program and uh, take some more notes. Uh, Next up on WIHI on October 25th, we're going to be talking about lowering readmissions and reducing disparities. We hope you'll uh, consider tuning in for that. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and they'll be happy to answer any of your questions. A great group of people make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Val Weber, Brian Derrick, and Pat McTiernan. And a big special thank you to the Innovators Network team for their help with today's show, Leslie and Rima and Melissa. And I also uh, want to thank Josh Eng for stepping in on today's chat. So as many of you know, this is a big privilege for me to host this program because it's got such amazing learning and is so focused on improving health and patient care. Uh, Our panelists give generously by being part of this and communicating with me (laughs) for weeks to build up uh, to our sharing with you today. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.